get the privilege of introducing also our preacher this morning. It's Dr. David King, and I'm going to read a little bit about David. David uh, and his wife, Lauren, they're three kids. They are ZPCers. They're active here in the life of the church. David is also an ordained pastor. He's a graduate of Samford University, Duke Divinity School, and Emory University, and he leads the Lake Institute on Faith and Giving, and he's an assistant professor of philanthropic studies within the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. So he's passionate about connections between faith and giving, and as we're talking about generosity this morning as it's part of our True North series, uh, I know both Jerry and I have really been looking forward to having David, who's here at ZPC, but also has an expertise on faith and giving to be our preacher this morning. So let's give a big welcome to David. Evidently, I'm the one who is going to talk about generosity and money this morning. Um, our scripture this morning comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been granted to the churches of Macedonia. For during a severe ordeal of affliction, for during a severe ordeal of affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For as I can testify, they voluntarily gave according to their means and even beyond their means, begging us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in this ministry to the saints. And this, not merely as we expected, they gave themselves first to the Lord and by the will of God to us, so that we might urge Titus that as we had already made a beginning, so he should also complete this generous undertaking among you. Now, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in utmost eagerness, and in our love for you. So we want you to excel also in this generous undertaking. I do not say this as a command, but I'm testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter I'm giving my advice it is appropriate for you who began last year not only to do something, but even to desire to do something. Now finish doing it so that your eagerness may be matched by completing it according to your means. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Now it's not necessary for me to write you about the ministry to the saints, for I know your eagerness, which is the subject of my boasting about you to the people of Macedonia saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you may not prove to have been empty in this case, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you in this undertaking." So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for this bountiful gift that you have promised so that it may be ready as a voluntary gift and not as an extortion. The point is this, the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. For the rendering of this ministry not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. Through the testing of this ministry, you glorify God by your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your sharing with them and with all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God that he has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This is the word of the Lord for us, the people of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it really is a pleasure to be here today preaching at my my home church, and I want to say a word of thanks to Scott and to Jerry, the elders, and the other church leaders uh, to have such a a role in shaping our lives, my family's lives, and those of my children and, and those of us here together. Preaching is something I love to do, but I don't get a chance to do it as much as I used to now that I'm working with Lake Institute. Now, I'm privileged to be a part of the work that we do at Lake Institute. My predecessor, predecessor Bill Enright, many of you may know, longtime pastor at Second Presbyterian Church here in Indianapolis, built the Lake Institute. And since 2002, for the last 15 years, we've sought to fulfill our mission, which is to foster a greater understanding of the way that faith inspires and informs giving. And we are part of this Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy that Scott mentioned on IUPUI's campus. And we actually are the best school of philanthropy in the world. It's partly because we're the only school of philanthropy in the world. But we offer an undergraduate degree, master's degree, and and Ph.D. in philanthropic studies. Uh, And so I get to work with our master's and doctoral students, but I spend a lot more time on the road working with churches and denominations and faith-based nonprofits to think about stewardship and generosity and giving by attending to research and to practice and to theology. But often when we work with a church or a denomination, when they seek us out, they're not really looking for theological reflection. They're actually looking much more for a how-to, how to raise more money or how to balance their budget. And we can help them there, but our best work really is when we can help faith communities to reframe the question. So generosity includes giving of our time, of our, of our talent and treasure, but it's more than that. It's an invitation to a new way of seeing, and it's a response to the grace that God offers to us through God's Son, Jesus Christ. And it's a way that we invite others into deeper community and relationship. See, generosity is a way of life. It's not just stewardship. I want to argue that it's more about discipleship. The United States has a reputation of being a very generous country. In this past year, we gave over $373 billion to charity. But the statistics say that the individual giver, as a percentage of our income, hasn't really changed much in the last 50 years. So for the last 50 years, Americans on average, give of their disposable income after taxes about 2% of their income. So whether it's, it's been about 1.9% to 2.2% from the last 50 years. So 2% of our disposable income to charity for the last 50 years. But the good news is that through almost every measure, people of faith are more generous than that 2%. That any way we study it, people of faith give more, they give more often, they volunteer more, and they give more to both religious and secular causes. This is pretty much universally agreed upon. Even my economist colleagues who could care less about religion per se are intrigued, and they don't understand why do people of faith 
give more. And some think, literally, some think it's because we get asked more. Like every week, there's going to be an offering that gets passed. And we always know that the preacher is always talking about money. But for me, as a person of faith, it's really a pretty easy explanation. First, there's this power in community. We care for one another. In this local church and more of the church universal, that we want to support the building of God's kingdom. But also, foundationally, giving is central to our faith. Our motivations are more than a charitable contribution or a tax deduction. For Christians, I think giving is much more than paying our dues, doing our fair share, a fee for service. Rather, it's actually a key practice of our faith. And it's not just a key practice of our faith. It's something that we have to practice. Few of us are born with a generosity gene. And most of us may find it harder and harder to practice generosity with increasing demands on our time and our money, the pressure to keep up with those around us, and measuring up to our own dreams and expectations. So, generosity takes practice. It takes work. And it takes making a conscious decision to live into a generous way of life. And as a way of life, it starts by thanking God for God's own generosity. But then it leads us into opening ourselves up to be formed and even transformed by the power of giving. So that's where we encounter the Apostle Paul in this long passage that we read together this morning. In his second letter to the church at Corinth. So in between letters 1 and 2, Paul and the Corinthians have hit a bit of a rough patch. Uh, Paul, never known to be exactly meek and mild, had said some tough things. The Corinthians had said some tough things. And it seemed like a public Facebook post gone wrong. But now Paul was seeking to heal those wounds, and the relationship was getting to a better place. And Paul had ended 1 Corinthians in the last chapter, in 16, with talk of a collection. This was a a major offering that many of the Gentile churches that Paul had helped create through his missionary journeys were taking up on behalf of the Jerusalem church, which was in some financial trouble. But this was much more than simply taking up a collection to help someone in need. The Jerusalem church wasn't so sure that the Gentiles were doing things the right way. Remember these past fights they'd had on whether they should be keeping kosher or circumcision, etc. So this was actually much more of a powerful statement for the Gentile churches to send funds, nevertheless, despite the fact that Jerusalem church wasn't even sure that they were Christians per se. It was more than a peace offering. It was really a witness to a shared faith, taking care of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So for the Gentiles, it may have been hard to give, but... I imagine for the Jerusalem church, it may have even been harder to receive. So it's not so easy to accept help either. We'll come back here, but maybe it's worth noting now that in order to give generously, we have to be able to receive openly. So Paul spends two chapters in this letter of Corinthians focused on giving. And he starts by holding up a set of other churches as an example. Paul shares what's been happening in the churches in Macedonia. These are the Philippians and the Thessalonians. They were under persecution, and that oftentimes led to financial hardship, but that didn't stop their giving. They gave voluntarily. 
I didn't compel them, Paul said over and over. And they gave well beyond their means. They were begging for the privilege to share in the ministry to the saints, this collection to the Jerusalem church. This wasn't an obligation. Paul made clear again, the church saw it as a privilege that led to an overflowing of abundant joy. Paul is pointing out that to the opportunity to give itself is a gift. There's a story attributed to Mother Teresa that's challenged my own notions of giving. In one of the impoverished Indian villages in which she worked, there was a feeding center. And each day, one member of every family would line up with a single bucket patiently for food. And so the nuns, the religious sisters, would fill each bucket with dry grains of rice. And there was a novice that was new to the religious order shadowing Mother Teresa as she herself methodically greeted each person and filled their buckets with rice. Before long, they noticed an elderly woman who reached the front of the line, and to the novice's surprise, she was carrying two buckets. Mother Teresa greeted her by name and proceeded to fill one bucket. And after thanking Mother Teresa, the woman left, and a short distance later, emptied half of her full bucket into the other empty bucket. And the novice, shadowing Mother Teresa, was miserable to see the witness to this extent of hunger and inequity. And she turned to Mother Teresa and asked, why do we not fill up both buckets for the poor, hungry woman? And Mother Teresa replied, there's only enough rice for each family to have one bucket each day. She has her neighbor's bucket because her neighbor's family They're all too sick to come and bring their own bucket. She is emptying half of her family's share into her neighbor's bucket to bring to them because she can't carry anymore. And flabbergasted, even angry, the novice replied, surely we should fill both buckets and take the second bucket to the sick family for her. And Mother Teresa stopped what she was doing, looked at the novice and said, these are among the most poor and destitute people that you'll ever meet Never take away the right of another person to be generous. Generosity is not a luxury for those of us with resources. It's an essential aspect of what, we, what it means to live a Christian, and I would say a human life. Giving and receiving puts us into relationship with one another, and these practices and these relationships can be powerful So let me ask, what's the most memorable or meaningful gift that you've ever received? I want you to have something in your mind. What's the most memorable or uh, meaningful gift you've ever received? Why was that gift so meaningful to you? Was it your relationship to the gift giver? Was there really any financial value to this gift in your mind? Did it have a value? Why? See, most of our giving is is transactional. It's obligatory. It's reciprocal. Think about gift giving at Christmas. Of course, we give gifts to our family. Maybe our next door neighbor gives us something, though, and then our our office coworkers buy us a Starbucks gift card, and you feel the need to reciprocate, right? So you find yourself stumbling over to Walgreens or CVS to find anything, anything that you can give to that person who's giving you that gift card that you hadn't really put on your list by the time the office party rolls around. It's uncomfortable. It's even hard sometimes for us to be in someone's debt. 
But in this drama that is the Christian life, how do we transition from simply obligatory or transactional giving to something more transformational? As Paul writes to the Corinthians, he's hoping to teach them to excel, not only in faith, in speech, and in knowledge, but also in generosity. Have you ever consciously thought about how you could excel in generosity? So the good news, quite literally, the good news, the gospel is that God is a generous and gracious God that through the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ models generosity. God became human flesh and served as the ultimate model of generosity. And not only did God's son humble himself to become human, but he became a poor, wandering rabbi. But he did so through his sacrifice so that we might become rich through eternal life. So too often, I think we see the call to give as an obligation, something God calls us to do strictly out of obedience. Where in fact, it appears through Scripture, God is not just making rules. God's inviting us to live a life of generosity so that we ourselves can experience transformation. God knows what's best for us. And God never falls into the trap that I know sometimes I do as a parent. My kids are coming to the second service, so I can say this now. That I, sometimes I fall into you know, asking them to do as I say, not as I do. It's not easy to practice generosity, but the good news is that we have a guide God and God's Son, Jesus, perfectly model that generosity for us. So our first response is gratitude for what God has done and is doing. And what we know is that God wants us to experience abundant life even now. So now abundance may need to be redefined. It's not that we get everything we want. It may be recognition that we have all that we need. So responding to God's love leads us to participate in God's generosity towards others. That is living the generous life. And it's not just that God can serve as our model of how to live the generous life. There are plenty of other models and good guides. Paul picks this up with the Corinthians with his first, these first verses in chapter 9. And he does it in sort of a cheeky kind of a challenge. Now, it's not necessary for me to write to you about the ministry to the saints, this collection that we're taking up for the Jerusalem church. Paul continues, for I know you're eager to give. I mean, I've been telling everybody about it, saying you've been about this whole collection thing for over a year, and this inspired them to give. Take these Macedonians who didn't really have anything, but they were eager to participate. And oh, by the way, did I tell you that I'm bringing a handful of those Macedonian leaders with me for them to, to see how generous you are? I mean, I've been telling them about you. I'm, I know you're excited to give. No pressure, except I would be humiliated, not to mention how you would feel if you couldn't come through with what you've already promised, but your choice. That's a good fundraising technique right there. Now, all jokes aside, Paul was clear that what he was encouraging the Corinthians to do was following through on what they had already committed to. He wanted them to make sure that this was a voluntary gift and that by the time he arrived, he didn't want anyone saying that he had twisted their arms to give. The point is this, Paul says, one who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, but one who sows generously will also reap generously. You sow what you reap. But we do damage to the text if we try to make this into some sort of mathematical equation, some sort of religious ROI, return on our investment that God is committed to uphold. Giving is not a divine bargain. Paul makes it clear again, God loves a cheerful giver. People give for all sorts of reasons, recognition, obligation. But again, for God, it's not that God's trying to squeeze a contribution out of us. God wants us to help recognize that through giving and receiving, 
we experience a blessing. The blessing of living in God's economy is not defined by the S&P and the Dow Jones, and it helps us see the world differently through the lens of thanksgiving, trust, and transformation. So one of the greatest gifts of my job is to occasionally spend time with extremely generous people, and I'm struck by the joy that they experience. And it's really contagious. Generosity comes in all shapes, sizes, and net worths, but these people challenge and inspire me, listening to their stories of when they caught this spirit of generosity. It reminds me of the end of our scripture passage, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. They may not can explain it, but the gift is their spirit of generosity, not the money itself. And so if we're thinking about modeling and attending to the practices of giving and receiving, what about within your own family? For those of you with young kids, how do you talk about giving with your kids? If they see us give, do they know why? These are kitchen table conversations, I like to call it, and they don't have to be theological or churchy. But it helps us remember what experiences that have shaped us and consider how we want to model what we hope our kids and our neighbors would see in us as the way that they want to live. So one of the leading researchers on generosity is a guy named Christian Smith. He's a sociologist at Notre Dame. And in the Science of Generosity project, he interviewed thousands upon thousands of individuals to get a sense of what the characteristics are of generous people. And it's important to note that when he defines generosity, financial giving is one aspect, but only one. Equally important were volunteering and what what Smith calls neighborliness or relational generosity. So he asked people questions like, have you helped a neighbor with a job, moving furniture, trimming bushes, watching their kids? Have you invited someone over to dinner not related to you in the past year? Neighborliness, hospitality, it turned out, was a big part of generosity. Remember back to our Hoosier neighbor series? It's all connected. So the other point that that Smith discovered was that people who were identified as generous through measures like giving time, money, and neighborliness also saw themselves as generous when you ask. So that's not them patting themselves on the back saying, look at me, I'm generous. But what, what Smith concluded was what Scripture is teaching. Generosity is a way of life. And so if you're to live generously, then it's a choice that you have to make. It's not just adding up all the pieces to see the total of generosity, generosity here, generosity there. Rather, it's a conscious choice of how you see the world and interact with it. So like most decisions that we are forced to make, if we have to focus and concentrate on each one equally, then we're paralyzed to inaction. But if we set our course, let's say our true north, then it makes the decisions each time we encounter them easier. So if we know we want to live generously and we want to experience the joy that God promises, then when the offering plate's passed, when a friend needs our help, when we walk past someone in need on the street, then we already know what we want to do. Smith's research also confirms what we mentioned earlier. There's no generosity gene. It's something that we have to practice. You know, in another part of Scripture, generosity is on the list of spiritual gifts alongside things like teaching and administration and preaching. So I've sat through spiritual gift inventories. I'm sure you might have too. And people felt relief as they think they dodged a bullet when the test came back and they didn't have the generosity gift. 
But again, it's not something we're born with or something that is reserved for those with the greatest resources for us to give. It's a way of life that we live into. And so it takes practice. It takes time. And only as we are molded and formed and then transformed with a new imagination. It's a little like putting on a new pair of glasses, seeing the world anew, and then pointing out what we see, testifying as witnesses. So to be generous is to be a first-class noticer. We take note of the hurt that often may go unseen in our world. But we also take note of the, and delight in the act of good, good acts of others. As generosity connoisseurs, we seek out beauty, we acknowledge it, and we savor it wherever it appears. So my challenge to us today is with Ash Wednesday this past week, we're beginning the season of Lent. And often Lent is a season that we give up something like chocolate or Facebook. But there's also a tradition of adding on a spiritual practice like prayer, reading scripture, silence. What if this Lent we take on the practice of generosity, sharing ourselves, our time and money? And what if we are on the lookout for generosity as first-class noticers? taking note of what and where we see God's grace in our troubled world, and then we stop to give thanks. I have a feeling that we might just walk lighter, breathe deeper, and hold more loosely to our possessions, our fears, and all those things that bind us. Practice makes perfect, and there's no more perfect time to start than now. Amen.